How's it going, Hope Chapel? Everybody wide awake? Thankful to be in church an hour earlier, in a way? Awesome. You know, the Bible is very clear, Jesus is very clear, that the church is not kind of a loose affiliation of people that kind of believe the same thing. The church is a family. So we are gathered together today, we're assembled as a family in and through Jesus. So I want to share with this family a little bit of news for my personal family. Is that okay? I was going to do it anyways, even if it wasn't okay. <clears throat> so many of you are aware that my wife and I have two children. Um, our oldest, our daughter Zoe, just turned two in February. And as Zoe was kind of like transitioning from being an infant to a toddler, and we were waiting for her to say her first words, my wife and I kind of had like this healthy competition for those first words. <clears throat> of course, I wanted, as a loving father, her first words to be dada. Of course, my, my wife was rooting for mama. <clears throat> well, my wife is home with Zoe during the day, and so she has a distinct advantage. <clears throat> and as it turns out, Zoe's first words were mama. Yeah. Don't clap. Not, I'm not done yet. <laughs> but as I was preparing this message this week, I was in my office over next door uh, on Wednesday afternoon, and I got a text from my wife, because our son just turned five months old, and we've kind of had that same uh, anticipation with respect to his first words, and so I got a text from my wife on Wednesday, and she said, your son just said his first words, and guess what they were? Mama. It's been that kind of a week, people, and we lost an hour of sleep. I got to be honest, my heart was a little bit jealous. My heart was a little bit jealous. Albeit overjoyed at uh, the observing my son's development. <clears throat> so that said, we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about the heart this morning. Jesus is going to be talking quite a bit about the heart. And so I just want to invite all of you to open your Bibles or boot them up if they're on your devices. And we're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 15 starting at verse 10. <clears throat> Matthew tells us, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These 
are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Church, this is the Word of God. So we're back in Matthew chapter 15, and we're following up. This passage is a continuation of the passage that Pastor Zach preached to you last weekend, specifically Matthew 15 verses 1 through 9. And that passage communicated, it recounted for us a conflict narrative, a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, specifically between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes. But they weren't just your everyday ordinary Pharisees and scribes. They weren't just your common Galilean religious leaders. Jesus and his disciples were in a conflict with religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes that were from Jerusalem. So there's this detachment of religious leaders from Jerusalem and they're confronting Jesus and his disciples over the tradition of the elders, some of the traditions that had been handed on and that had evolved over time in Judaism. And their contention with Jesus was that his disciples were eating food that was ceremonially unclean because the disciples had not washed their hands in observance of some of those traditions of the elders. This is like this great big climactic moment because you have the top gun religious figures coming all the way up from Jerusalem to confront Jesus and to try to discredit him by discrediting his disciples. And so like in one corner of the octagon, right? Like you have Jesus and his disciples. In the other corner of the octagon, you have the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem. And in the background, you have all the crowds, all the people that are watching this unfold. And in front of all those people, Jesus tells these religious leaders, uh, you accuse my disciples of breaking the traditions of the elders, but you break the commandments of God. And he takes it one step further and intensifies his case against them and says, your traditions actually break the commandments of God. And as if they were probably not upset enough with him at this point, Jesus goes in for the takedown and he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah had prophesied against the people of Israel and he had said, God spoke through him and said the people of Israel had grown hard-hearted. And Jesus quotes this prophecy against these religious leaders and says, yeah, what was true of the hard-hearted people of Israel is true of you guys today. And he gets to the root issue. He says in Matthew Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so now, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to transition his attention. He's been dealing with these religious thugs, and now he's going to turn his attention and address the crowds who have been watching this whole scene unfold. Are you with me? Now, this leads me to the main point. I want to assert it right up front that this passage this morning is communicating, and that is very simply that the human heart is the source of all sin and separation from God. The fallen human heart is the source of all sin and separation from God. And because of that, therefore, we need total transformation on the inside that will lead to or produce total discipleship on the outside. Let's see what Jesus has to say. say. In verse 10, 
we see that he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. Hear and understand. So right away we see Jesus inviting the crowds to respond to him. They've seen all that was unfolding in front of them and now Jesus calls them to respond to him and to what he's saying. And he says what? Hear and understand. Now, when reading the text, sometimes we can skip over statements like this and we can just see hear and understand is just simply a way of saying like, guys, listen up, right? Well, that's what the hear is communicating. What the understand is communicating something more than that. So in this context, hearing and understanding are two actions that are related but are also distinct. And what I mean by that is it's possible to hear Jesus, but not to understand him. It's possible to hear Jesus, but not to understand him. What does Jesus mean by understand? Well, the word that's used here in in the original language communicates this sense of having an intelligent grasp of something. And that makes sense to us. But an intelligent grasp of something that challenges, challenges not only one's thinking, but also challenges one's practice, what one does, how one behaves. And the verb here that's translated understand, by the way, when Jesus says hear and understand, the idea that he's communicating is hear and keep hearing and understand and keep understanding. But the word that's translated as this command or call to understand is also related to the word that's used in our Bibles to describe the conscience. And so I want to suggest that to understand is to both comprehend and to internalize. It's to understand God's word, but also to internalize it. It's to appropriate God's truth for oneself. And the problem that we have today as modern readers two centuries after the events, is that we tend to think of understanding as a purely cognitive, as a purely mental activity or process, right? So we read that and we think, oh, understand. Yeah, like, I understand, but it's more than that. Understanding as as expressed by Jesus here is more than just cognitive. It involves reception of his word in the whole interior person. Now, to get a sense of what Jesus is calling for when he calls the crowds to hear and understand, we only really need to look two chapters back to Matthew 13. And if you've been tracking with us for the past couple months, we've taught through Matthew chapter 13, and we call that the parabolic discourse, because Jesus teaches the people in parables. And those parables communicate truths about the kingdom of God, about God's reign that is unfolding, that's being revealed in their very midst. And so, as Jesus is teaching all the people in parables, the disciples come to him and say, hey, why are you teaching in parables? Why are you using this approach? And Jesus cites a prophet again. He cites the prophet Isaiah, and he says in Matthew 13, verses 14 through 15, for this people's heart has grown dull, and their eye, with their eyes, Ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so I want to point out the correlation between understanding and the heart. If we go to the next slide, 
You'll see the heart has grown dull, and Jesus says, if it had not, they would understand with their heart, with their inner person, and that they would turn. Also in Matthew chapters 13, we see Jesus teach right at the beginning the parable of the sower. And this parable just deals with how the gospel is to be proclaimed and how it's going to be received. And Jesus says in the parable of the sower that there's four kinds of soils. And he identifies three bad soil that will ultimately reject the gospel and one good soil. Now remember, he's called the crowds to hear and understand. And as Jesus describes to the disciples when he provides an explanation of the parable of the sower, when he describes the first bad soil, he describes it this way, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not, what? Understand it, the evil one has come, evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown, where? In his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so I just want to assert the point that all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the heart is the organ of understanding. The heart is the organ of understanding. One commentator said that to understand is the distinctive response of true disciples. And so Jesus is here calling the people to hear and understand. And church, Jesus' call to understand echoes through the halls of history and it comes to us today. And my prayer today is that God would bring us to a place of understanding his word and therefore to a place of understanding his will. Now Jesus is going to announce to the crowds next the general principle of the entire passage. This is what he wants them to understand. Hear and understand. Hear and understand. Verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And so the key contrast that Jesus is highlighting is the contrast between into and out of. What goes into a person versus what comes out of the person. But notice here that Jesus focuses specifically on what comes out of the mouth. He focuses specifically on speech. If you want to gauge the spiritual condition of your heart, stop and consider what regularly comes out of your mouth. Stop and consider your speech. Is your speech typically characterized by gossip or by murmuring? Profanity, disrespect, frustration, complaining, arrogance, hate. Whereas in the case of the religious leaders, unbelief. You see, those are all things that are indicative of a heart that is opposed to God, that a heart, a heart that is far from Him. Or as you assess what comes out of your mouth? Is your speech characterized by the fruits of the Spirit? Is your speech loving? Is it joy-filled? Is it peaceful, peace-bringing, peace-giving? Is it patient? Is it kind? Does your talk relate goodness? Does it cultivate goodness? Is it faithful, trustworthy, 
Is it gentle? Is your talk self-controlled? And so here Jesus is telling the crowds, look, that food that was the subject of all this controversy, the food that was consumed with unwashed hands, that's not what compromises somebody's standing with God. It's not the things that we touch. It's not the things that we take in, but it's what proceeds out of us that is the problem. And so Jesus is essentially saying in this passage, true defilement is not external, it's not ritual, but it's internal and it's moral. It's internal and it's spiritual. He's speaking of a kind of internal pollution. And at the same time, he's completely undercutting the tradition of the elders, man's tradition, religious systems that really aren't from God. And this really, really, really ticks off those religious leaders. So we look at verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Oh, he knows. <laughs> he meant to offend them. He meant to provoke them. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what we learn about the Pharisees just by examining the disciples' question. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they what? When they heard. And Jesus has called the crowds to what? Hear and understand. And so here the disciples say they heard, but they did not understand. They heard and they were offended. And the word that's literally used here is the word from which we derive our English word scandal. Jesus literally says they heard, and, or the disciples literally say they heard and they were scandalized. This word is loaded with meaning in the original text. And its primary meaning relates this idea of a very deep religious offense. They took deep religious offense at the preaching of Jesus. And this deep religious offense leads to or gives rise to something. It, it leads to, it causes a denial and a rejection of Jesus himself. So to be scandalized by Jesus' teaching is to be so offended by it that you reject Jesus himself. So we see that going on with these religious leaders. We see that all the time today, all the time. People are scandalized when they're confronted by Jesus' sexual ethic. People are scandalized. They reject the message and they reject him when they're confronted with Jesus' instruction on how to deal with money. People are scandalized when they realize that Jesus calls them to love their enemies. We could go on and on and on about examples when people were scandalized, but the disciples' question reveal that these religious leaders were scandalized. And in this instance, the scandal arises out of the difference between God and man. You see, these religious leaders were zealous for the traditions of their forefathers, the traditions of the elders, and they had lost the heart of God. And so you have the heart of man pitted against the heart of God. And they take offense at his message which becomes offense at Jesus himself. 
which becomes a turning away from him in unbelief. A hardening of the heart, a rejection of Jesus, and that is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Our English translations say, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, but the literal rendering is, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. And so I want you to see this great, magnificent, high-definition contrast at this moment in the narrative, because we see on one hand, Jesus calling the people to hear and understand. We see Jesus' disciples hearing him and growing in understanding, internalizing his word, learning to walk in it, following after him. But then we see the religious leaders hearing but not understanding, hearing and being scandalized, hearing and rejecting him. But back to the disciples' question. Does Jesus answer their question? Not directly. He doesn't directly answer their question. Instead, Jesus' response addresses the deeper spiritual issues that are at work in those religious leaders. Verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, you have to appreciate the fact that Jesus is dismissing a religious delegation from Jerusalem. These guys were the best of the best, right? They graduated from Top Gun. And this is what they were accustomed to. They were accustomed to ceremonious reception. They were accustomed to enjoying the place of honor everywhere they ate. They were used to people looking up to them as the model spiritual citizens. And here, in front of the crowds, to his disciples, Jesus says six things. They are not planted by God. They will be uprooted by God. They're to be left alone. They're to be disregarded because they're spiritually blind and they mislead others who are also spiritually blind. And both they and those who they mislead will fall into the pit. And what Jesus means by that is that their end will be destruction. In church, these are the guys that everyone thought had it figured out spiritually. These were the guys that were the models of religious piety. But as for now, Jesus instructs his followers to have nothing to do with them and to see them for what they really are, the blind leading the blind. We should read this and be warned be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Follow Jesus. Amen. Follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it best, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ. Now the next six verses, the remaining six verses, represent the concluding section of the account. And they open with Peter. So we've gone from Jesus dealing with the religious leaders, to Jesus calling the crowds to hear and understand, to the disciples collectively asking Jesus about 
the religious leaders, and now Peter, very personal. Peter asks Jesus a question as a representative of all the disciples. Verse 15, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. I think that there's like a little bit of irony built into this question or this statement, if you will. Again, if you go back to Matthew 13, the whole chapter, the parabolic discourse, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching about God's unfolding reign. He's teaching about all that God is doing in human history to redeem human history. And at the end of all that teaching, at the end of the explanations that he gives to the disciples to make sure that they are being shepherded, shepherded into proper spiritual understanding, he asks them explicitly, do you understand all these things? And they respond, yes. And Jesus is like, great, we can move on now. <clears throat> but chapter 13 is full of rich parables And we could mine the spiritual meaning and significance of those parables for a really long time, certainly longer than the few weeks we spent on them. And in this passage, Jesus has called the crowds to hear and understand one singular principle, that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, it's what comes out of the mouth. Relatively speaking, doesn't seem that complicated to all of chapter 13. And Peter said to him, yeah, we don't get it. Can you explain it to us? And Jesus says, are you all also still without understanding? But here's the thing. Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And so despite his amazement at their lack of understanding, Jesus graciously accommodates their request for an explanation. Verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? In other words, guys, let me break it down for you. All right? The food that you eat doesn't compromise your standing with God. Now, certainly some of us have sinful relationships with food, right? Like some of us are gluttonous. Uh, you know, we abuse food, you know, it's like an idol for us. But that's not the food's fault, right? No, it's our fault. And so Jesus exonerates the food, okay? And then he narrows in on the root issue. He's going to begin to unpack that principle that he called the crowds to hear and understand. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. There it is. There it is. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And so here, Jesus is finally making a very important connection for clarification and explanation for his disciples to lead them into a proper understanding of their condition and everyone's condition. You see, Jesus connects our speech. He connects the mouth to the heart. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
That word heart is used over and over and over again in this section. It's used over and over and over again in Matthew. And as Jesus unpacks, preaches the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew in his first major discourse, he is all over the heart, dealing with the intentions of the heart, dealing with the requirements, God's requirements for the heart. We might ask, what does he mean by the heart? Jesus the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Bible, when it speaks of the heart, is not referring to that biological mechanism inside our chest cavity that keeps us alive by pumping blood. That's not what Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to the literal heart, but he's speaking of the heart as the seat of understanding, as the seat of moral affection, and the seat of our will. So the heart is the seat of understanding, moral affection, and will. The heart is the basis for all mental, physical, and spiritual life. It's the center and source of our whole inner person. It includes our thinking, our feeling, our choosing, and it represents our human will. Where our inner thoughts conceive, where faith itself flourishes or dies, and where people treasure up objects of worship. The whole inner person is what Jesus refers to when he's dealing with the heart. And it's this heart that Jesus singles out as fundamentally sinful. That is not a popular message today. In a culture where everybody affirms and takes for granted that man is basically good. Here in this passage, Jesus is saying precisely the opposite. He's saying man at his core, in his innermost being, is fundamentally sinful. Man's heart is fallen and irrevocably corrupt. This is not new news. Scripture affirms this from the beginning, immediately after the fall, to the end. The prophet Jeremiah said, perhaps this most clearly and decisively of all, God speaking through Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above a lot of things. Yeah, no, all things. The heart is deceitful above everything else. There's nothing in creation. There's nothing in our experience. There's nothing in our lives that is more deceitful than the human heart. The human heart is deceitful above all things and it's pretty sick. Desperately sick. Hopelessly sick. Irrevocably sick. The message that Jesus is conveying and the message that scripture presents, the picture that it paints for us, of the human condition is a heart that cannot be counseled back into good standing with God. You can't kind of go to therapy and have your heart reconditioned to a place where it's going to be pleasing to God and in line with his will or even able to discern his will. No, no, no. This is is a total and ultimate condemnation of the core of our person. Church, the fallen human heart is the source of all sin and separation from God. And as if he had not made the point explicitly enough, Jesus drives it home by detailing a litany of vices, a litany of sins that proceed out of that fallen heart. Verse 19, for out of the human heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hand, that doesn't defile anyone. We are often given to 
quick to confuse cause and effect in, in many parts of our life. But sp specifically, spiritually, we confuse cause and effect. You see, we don't become sinful by committing sins. We don't become sinful by committing sins. We commit sins because we are sinful. That's what Jesus is saying. We commit sins because we are sinful. Jesus is saying, guys, the problem is not with the state of your hands, it's with the state of your heart. And that leads to our need. You see, our need is for God to cleanse our hearts. Our need is not for us to ceremonially wash our hands. That's what's going on here. The Bible's consistent in presenting a picture of a human heart that dethrones God. God, in his goodness, created. He made you and he made me. He made the first man and the first woman. And he commissioned them, and us by extension and inheritance, he commissioned man to be his vice regent and to rule over all of creation. He created man in his own image, in his own likeness. And he put everything in creation under our feet, except for him. God alone is the arbiter of truth. God alone is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Yet our hearts insist, no God, you will not decide what is right for me. I will decide what is right for me. You may say that, I don't like it, I'm going to do this. And ever since the fall, humans have become very, very, very adept at taking the good things that God has made and tearing him off of his throne and making those good things ultimate things in the place that only God should be. This is called idolatry. And it's been going on for millennia. And sometimes when we read our New Testaments, we're like a little bit weirded out, you know, that 2,000 years ago, people would go worship at temples to gods of sex and fertility. Like, whoa, like why were they going to the temple of Artemis and sleeping with temple prostitutes? That's kind of weird. Yeah, we may not have a temple of Artemis down on Artesia Boulevard, but we have the internet. It's worse. You know, but we're not sacrificing young maidens as temple prostitutes. Rather, late at night when no one's watching, men, even men in the church, have their pants around their ankles and are sacrificing young women online who could be their daughters. We worship those same gods today. We think it's strange that people in the Old Testament worship gods of prosperity because they wanted to be financially secure. They wanted a good life. We're not much different. We worship at the altar of prosperity also. Sex is a good thing. It's a gift from God. The ability to work 
and to produce and to generate income and to sustain and provide is, is a good thing. But our hearts are so quick to take those good things and make them ultimate things and to pervert them and to say, no, God, I don't want it the way that you designed it. I want it the way I want it. The famous reformer John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. A factory of idols. This is bad news. This is a hard, if you like came to church today and you're like, dude, this is a downer, man. Like, Mike, I brought my visitor today. Did you have to go there? I recognize that there is a sense in which this is bad news, right? This is, this is a, a hard appraisal of the human condition that Jesus is conveying in this passage. But the hard appraisal warrants a hard message. And here's the thing. God is a good God. And so whenever he communicates bad news, he always follows it with good news. Because God does not relegate us to, leave us to our fallenness, our brokenness, our idolatry. He does not leave us to our own devices. He calls us out of them. But he does not call us out of them expecting that we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and reform ourselves out of them. No, 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 no. He makes a way. He makes a way. You see, an essential part of God's plan of redemption is to give us new hearts. Not to just point out that they're fallen, that we would wallow in our depravity, but to actually give us new hearts. Because apart from his redemptive, regenerative initiative, our hearts are dead. They are sin factories. Church, the fallen human heart is the source of all sin and separation from God. And we need total transformation on the inside that produces total discipleship on the outside. And the only hope for the human heart is the new birth. And the new birth is only possible because of Jesus, through Jesus. Our hearts are sinful. We do not just stand under God's condemnation because of our sins. We stand under his condemnation because of our sinfulness. And out of our sinfulness, we accumulate mountains of sin, but God in his mercy has made a way for our sins to be remitted, for our sins to be wiped away, for our sins to be forgiven, for us to receive a divine pardon. But not only for us to have a way out in that judicial sense, a way out from under his just guns of judgment. But God has also made a way for us to be made clean because the blood of Jesus is like a divine detergent. It cleanses our hearts. God forgives our hearts. He cleanses our hearts. And through the new birth, through being born again, we are given new hearts. Jesus says in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again, Jesus says. It is a necessary precondition for the possibility of forgiveness entering into God's kingdom, being reconciled to him. <clears throat> At the beginning of this message, I pointed out that 
from the beginning of chapter 15 through the end of our passage this morning, we see three primary groups of people. We see the disciples, we see the religious leaders from Jerusalem, and we see the crowds. And each of them represents a different orientation to God, a different standing with him. You see, because the disciples have committed to following Jesus, and he is shepherding them into understanding. He is leading him in his word and in his will, and they are being changed. Then you have the crowds, the multitudes who are amazed by Jesus, fascinated with him, but on the fence, not yet decided, not yet necessarily with understanding, not yet necessarily scandalized in rejecting him on the fence. Then you have the religious leaders who are on the opposite side. They have rejected Jesus, they have rejected his message, and their hearts are hard. And sometimes I wonder, are our churches today, we live in a post-Christian culture, but there's a lot of religious activity in our culture. Sometimes I wonder, do the congregations in our country, and dare I say, even our congregation, even me, do our congregations look more like the disciples or like the crowds? Or even worse, do our congregations look more like those religious leaders, just religious traditionalists whose hearts are dull, hard, and far from God, not really loving God, not really loving neighbor, not really born again. Jesus' challenge in this passage warrants our questioning of our standing. Jesus' challenge, his condemnation of the human heart warrants us asking, are we truly born again? I want to ask you a question. Are you here this morning because it's a part of your routine, because you like some of the music, because Justin's voice is so soothing? Or are you here this morning because you're hungry for God? Are you hungry for God? Have you and are you experiencing in your life deep personal transformation. Because a hunger for God and deep personal transformation are necessary consequences of the new birth. Jesus says, you must be born again. God has promised to give us new hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. God has made a way. God has made a way. And so I want to ask you, are those realities evident in your life? To be born again, to meet Jesus, to be converted means necessarily that your life is different because prior to Jesus, prior to new birth, your heart was opposed to him and after meeting Jesus and after being changed by him, after getting a new heart, you are now oriented towards him. You love him. You don't hate him. He's your friend, not your enemy. 
So I want to call everyone to three things. I want to call you to recognize, are you truly born again? Jesus says you have to be. I want to call everyone to repent. God's word says to seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus said himself, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is good news. God has put himself under eternal obligation to forgive repentant sinners. We are all sinners. I'm not a man standing up here preaching these things self-righteous. No, 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 no. I'm a sinner saved by grace alone. And by God's mercy, he's put himself under obligation to forgive me as I humble myself before him, seek forgiveness, and leave behind me those things which separate me from him. And finally, I want to call you to read. Recognize, repent, read. Immerse yourself in God's word. Romans 10, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Andrew and I joke around about the 21 days of reading. I've been thinking about these things for some time now. I've been convicted by the word for some time now. I've been charged to stand up here and preach to you about these things. And every time I get assigned a passage, it's dealing with the heart, it's dealing with these things. Man, it has humbled me. It has caused me to assess myself honestly. God, I, I should hunger for you more. I should be experiencing more deep personal transformation. I can't manufacture it. I can't cause you to do things, but what I can do is acknowledge my need. And I can humble myself before you and I can soak up your word and trust that you will work through that process. So church, I wanna call you to recognize, I want to call you to repent and I wanna call you to read these next two weeks as we approach Easter. And I want to leave you with the words of the prophet Joel. God speaks through Joel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which leads us inevitably, invariably to your son, who leads us inevitably and invariably to salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, who was beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross to take our punishment for us. Jesus, thank you for dying a substitutionary death and atoning for our sins. Thank you that your blood is the divine detergent that makes us clean. Thank you that your sacrifice is the one that was necessary and sufficient to make possible the new birth, where we could be given new hearts, where we could be new creations who wait for you to return and inaugurate the new creation, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice, and no more separation from you. Father, I pray for the people that you, by your sovereign will, have brought here this morning. I pray that if there are people this morning who have been born again, who do know you, but whose hearts have grown cold, who don't truly hunger for you anymore, and who are not experiencing deep personal transformation, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would convict their hearts and draw them back to you in repentance, reaffirming their faith. And I pray, Lord, for those 
invariably, who are here who don't know you. Maybe they think they've been born again, but they truly haven't. Lord, I pray that you would convert those hearts this morning. I pray that you would save people this morning. I pray that people would be born again. I want to ask everybody to